Well, this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. This morning, as you're turning in your Bibles to John chapter 12, our focus this morning will be on verses 27 through 36. And uh, before James comes up here, I just want a a little word of introduction about James. Uh, James, as many of you have known, he is... uh, a Reformed Theological Seminary professor, and some of you have taken classes with him. I myself have been included in that and have benefited greatly from him. Uh, he is ordained in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, and so he is a pastor, and he's as well as an author. Uh, he's, he published a couple different books that you can look up um, that have to do with uh, worldview, that have to do with Christianity, uh, apologetics, and uh, encourage you. But we're thankful this morning that he's coming to bring us his word. Uh, you, and uh, I just want to ask you guys as you turn in your Bibles to listen to the word this morning, but then also hear James as he brings us uh, God's word from John chapter 12. But hear these words from John chapter 12, verses 26 or 27 through 36. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to be here and to uh, share something uh, from God's word with you uh, before I uh, begin, let's, uh, let's pray together and ask the Lord's help. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. My prayer is that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable, pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. On October the 5th of this year, one of the most dramatic and memorable events in the history of art took place at Sotheby's in London. An iconic painting 
entitled Girl with Balloon by the reclusive contemporary artist Banksy was put up for auction. You maybe heard this story. Well, the, the bidding proceeded until the painting was sold at the record price of £1,042,000, British pounds. But only seconds after the gavel came down, signaling the end of the auction, a siren sound was heard coming out of the painting, and the canvas started to move downwards through the bottom of the picture frame, shredding itself. It turns out that years beforehand, Banksy had built a hidden shredder into the frame of the painting, which he would be able to trigger remotely in the event that this work was ever put up for auction. Afterwards, he renamed the work from Girl with Balloon to Love is in the Bin. <laughs> and he also, that same day, posted on his Instagram page a photo of the canvas being shredded, to which he had added the caption, going, going, gone. You can go sit on YouTube for yourself. Well, as you can imagine, this stunt provoked a great deal of discussion about the value of artworks and the nature of art itself. But I want to point out just two interesting aspects of this story. First, there was a dramatic reversal, a dramatic reversal. A painting was sold for a record price, over one million pounds, which demonstrated just how valuable it was in the eyes of its admirers, and then, within seconds, it had been almost completely destroyed, literally reduced to shreds. So there was a dramatic reversal. But second, there was also a play on words involved, a double meaning. Going, going, gone for one million pounds. Going, going, gone through the shredder. Now, what does any of this have to do with our passage this morning? I'm sure you're wondering. Well, it turns out that in this passage that we've just read from God's Word, we find the same two elements. First, there's a play on words. There's a, a double meaning in this phrase, lifted up, that Jesus uses. It actually translates, uh, in the original Greek, a word which can mean exalted, praised, glorified. You know, when, when Christians say, lift up the name of Jesus, lift him up, you know, exalt him, praise him, that's what it means. But that same Greek word can also mean literally, physically lifted up, raised up, hoisted up, just as Jesus was when he was crucified. And as we'll see, we're meant to hear both of these meanings in the words of Jesus. There's an intentional double meaning here. And that leads us to the dramatic reversal that we see in this passage. In fact, it's a dramatic double reversal. The Son of God, who is affirmed by a voice from heaven at his baptism, whose disciples got a glimpse of his heavenly glory at his transfiguration, who was cheered as the Messiah when he entered Jerusalem, this Son of God is going to die. He's going to die in shame and excruciating pain. If I can put this reverently, the priceless Prince of Glory 
is going to be put through the shredder. And yet, and yet, by this shameful death, he is going to receive an even greater glory. It's not just that he's going to be exalted after his death. The plan is that he is going to be exalted through his death. And his death will be the means by which his people will themselves be lifted up. Lifted up to heaven with him. So, let's dig deep into God's word together. I hope you have your Bible still open, that you'll follow along in God's word with me as we explore this, this rich passage. And we're going to, continue, uh, we're going to consider uh, this passage under three headings, and you'll see the outline in the bulletin. First, the exaltation of Jesus, lifted up into glory. Uh, second, the execution of Jesus, lifted up in death. And third, the exhortation of Jesus. Uh, what does this Son of Man have to say about how people should respond when they see him lifted up? What should our response be? That's what we will be considering. So first, let's think about the exaltation of Jesus, lifted up in glory. Well, to understand the, the broader context of what Jesus says in these verses, we need to rewind the tape a bit. We need to go back. We need to review the events that lead up to these words of Jesus. If you look back in chapter 12 at verses 12 through 19, they describe the triumphal entry. We thought about this a few weeks ago. Jesus, you'll remember, had entered Jerusalem being welcomed by a cheering crowd, waving palm branches and praising him as the king of Israel who had been prophesied in their scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. Jesus was being exalted by the crowd as the promised Messiah who would deliver Israel from their oppressors. We're told in, in verse 18 of this chapter that the reason for all this enthusiasm of the crowd, for all this enthusiasm about Jesus, is because the crowd had heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. The crowd was buzzing about what Jesus had done. So as he rode into Jerusalem, Jesus was being lifted up. He was being exalted. Even the Pharisees, his critics and his enemies, grudgingly acknowledged the recognition that he was receiving. Remember what they said? Look, the world has gone after him. And yet even in this triumphal entry, all is not quite as it seems. This new king of Israel isn't entering the city on a mighty war horse, ready to do battle against his enemies, but on a young donkey. Maybe people's expectations about this king aren't quite right. Well, then in the next section, verses 20 through 26, we're told that some Greeks came, to ask, came and asked to, to meet with Jesus. This is surprising because they're, they're Gentiles and Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. What do they want with him? Well, Jesus doesn't turn them away, but neither does he welcome them on in. Instead, he says something quite expected, unexpected. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We mustn't miss the fact that this here was a watershed moment in the ministry of Jesus. Up to this point, Jesus has been saying, the hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. But now for the first time, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. 
So what's going to happen in this hour? Jesus is going to be glorified. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be lifted up by his Father. Now you think, this is going to be a wonderful thing. It's going to be glorified. It's going to be exalted. But Jesus' words immediately take a somber turn. He starts talking about how a grain of wheat has to die in order to bear fruit. About how if you love your life, you'll lose it. And if you hate your life, you'll keep it forever. What is going on here? What kind of a weird glorification is this? And so we come to verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. The time has come, the hour has come for Jesus to be glorified and his soul is troubled. The word troubled here speaks of inner turmoil and anguish. Jesus knows the path that he has to take and it is deeply disturbing to him. You know, of all the four Gospels, John's Gospel is the one that most emphasizes Jesus' divinity, that he is truly the Son of God. But here, in these words, we see the full humanity of Jesus on display. The fact that Jesus says these words, I think, should be a great encouragement to us as we pass through trials, even through the valley of the shadow of death. We sometimes have this idea, don't we, of the the stoic Jesus, face like flint, unmoved by events. And we think perhaps we're supposed to have the same kind of stoic attitude to events in our own lives. Don't get upset. Don't cry about it. Just accept whatever life throws at you. Que sera, sera. But that's not the Jesus that we see here. The same Jesus who wept at the death of Lazarus is wrestling inwardly with what God has called him to do and he isn't ashamed to express it outwardly. Jesus is wrestling here with his mission, with his calling, just as we see him wrestling later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the same prayer. Father, save me from this hour. Father, let this cup pass from me Yet not as I will, but as you will. Father, glorify your name. We see here that Jesus is committed to the glory of the Father, just as his Father is committed to glorifying his Son. Is that lifting up again? The hour has come for the Son to be lifted up in glory. And the prayer of the Son at the same time is that the Father's name be lifted up in glory. And as Jesus prays this prayer, his Father speaks directly from heaven as a public confirmation. This is one of the only, uh, this is one of only three times, only three times in the Gospels that God speaks from heaven to affirm his Son. The first time was at Jesus' baptism. The second time, was at Jesus' transfiguration. And this is the third time. As Jesus announces, the hour has come. The Father is once again placing his seal of approval on his Son. It's another 
brief moment of exaltation. God is acknowledging Jesus and his mission before the crowd. Well, we've considered now the first kind of lifting up, the the exaltation of Jesus. Now in verses 31 through 33, we turn explicitly to the second kind of lifting up. How will the Father be glorified? How will the Son of Man be glorified? In a cruel act of crucifixion, Jesus will literally, physically be lifted up on a cross. This isn't the first time that Jesus had talked about being lifted up in this way. Back in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, when he's speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus says these words, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then in chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. Actually, literally what he says there is, you will know that I am. He's taking the very name of God upon himself. No wonder the Pharisees were so angry about what he was saying. So Jesus had already predicted his death, and he had promised that his death would bring eternal life to all who would believe in him. But now, in these verses here in chapter 12, Jesus is quite explicit about how he is going to die. Verse 32. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Everyone who was listening to him would have understood that he was talking about crucifixion. Jesus had just said he was going to die back in verse 24. It implied it. But now he says he's going to be lifted up from the earth. Literally, what he says is, I'm going to be lifted up off the ground. Everyone would have understood that this was a reference to the brutal execution method used by the Romans. A shameful, agonizing death for criminals and traitors. How on earth could this be glorifying to God? Well, the answer is partly in the text itself, which mentions three things that Jesus' death is going to accomplish. When he is lifted up, this will have three results. Look at them with me. Verse 31. First, the world will be subject to judgment. The world will be subject to judgment. The cross will show just how seriously a holy God takes human sin. It will display the horrific consequence and penalty of breaking God's laws. But the wrath and judgment of God will be poured out on who stands in the place of his people. And yet, at the same time, the cross brings judgment because it brings division. The cross is going to divide the world in two. Those who believe and those who don't believe. You know, in the crucifixion, the world thought it was passing judgment on Jesus. When in reality, it was God passing judgment 
on the world. So that's the first result, the first consequence. The second is that the ruler of the world will be cast out. Verse 31 again. The ruler of the world will be cast out. Jesus is referring here to the judgment of Satan, the great enemy. With the coming of Christ, with the arrival of the kingdom of God, the tyrannical rule of Satan, the imposter king, is decisively broken. Although the enemy will not be finally banished until the return of Christ. But at what point does Satan receive the fatal blow? It's at the cross. It's at the death of Christ. C.S. Lewis captured this so well in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember the scene when Aslan goes to the enemy camp and he's tied up, shaved, humiliated, mocked, and eventually the witch throws in the death blow What they don't realize as they mocked and attacked Aslan is that they were sowing the seeds of their own destruction right there at that moment. They didn't know it, but that was their defeat, not Aslan's. It's the same here. The cross looks like a defeat for Jesus, but it's not. It's victory. It's triumph over Satan. The ruler of the world will be cast out. And then the third result, the third consequence of this lifting up is in verse 32. People from all over the world will be saved. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This drawing that Jesus talks about uh, takes us back to chapter 6 of John's gospel, where Jesus had talked at length about being the, the bread of life. He, remember this, this long uh, discourse, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never hunger, whoever believes in me will never thirst. To come to Jesus is to believe in him, and to believe in him is to be saved, to have eternal life. But Jesus also says at that time, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, draws him. Lost people have to be drawn to Christ. And God's incredible plan is that they will be drawn when Jesus is lifted up, lifted up in death. Now, we shouldn't be misled here uh, by the word all to think that Jesus is teaching some sort of universalism here, that everyone is going to be saved in the end. The word all in this context means all without distinction, all without any discrimination. We might put it this way, all kinds of people. Remember what originally prompted these words from Jesus. It was Greeks, Gentiles, wanting to meet Jesus, wanting to see Jesus. Jesus doesn't grant those Greeks an audience at that time. What he says, in effect, is just wait. Just wait and see. When I'm lifted up, then you'll come to me. The door of the sheepfold will be wide open. Not just Jews and Greeks, but Romans, Africans, Indians, Asians, Europeans, yes, even Americans, will come to him. People from every tribe, every tongue, 
Every nation will be drawn to the Savior. That is the glory of the cross. And so even in the execution of Jesus, we see the exaltation of Jesus because of what it accomplishes. I mentioned earlier that auction, somewhat shocking auction, that Banksy painting that was sold for over a million pounds and then shredded. You know what people are debating now? You know what the art critics are debating now? Whether it's going to be worth even more now after this event. The head of Sotheby's said this, this is the first artwork in history to have been created live during an auction. His point was, this wasn't an act of destruction. It might have looked that way. It was actually an act of creation. That was his interpretation. Honestly, that's not a bad analogy for the crucifixion. The destruction of Jesus' body was also a work of creation. The creation of a new body, what we call the church. People saved from every tongue and tribe and nation and brought together, united by faith in Jesus. We're not quite done with our text, though. We still need to see how the crowd responds to Jesus' words and then how Jesus responds to their response. Look at verse 34 now. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What's going on here? Well, basically, people are expressing doubts. They're expressing doubts. The law here, when they refer to the law, that's a reference to the Old Testament scriptures. The crowd is saying, we know that our scriptures promised a Messiah who would save us. We know that. But we've been told that this Messiah is going to live forever. He's never going to die. And you're saying that this Son of Man is going to die. And on a cross of all things. How can this Son of Man also be the Messiah. He must be someone else. So who is he? More to the point, who are you, Jesus? Who or what are you claiming to be? They have doubts because they don't get it. They have only a very partial understanding of what their scriptures actually taught. Yes, they're right. This Messiah would be a triumphant king who would be exalted. But that Messiah would also be a suffering servant who would be executed. And so they can't put these things together. And the response of the crowd is one of unbelief. This is a response of unbelief. Think of it. They have just heard the voice of God from heaven in response to Jesus, and they still don't believe. So what does Jesus do in response to their unbelief? He gives... An exhortation. And it is very simple. Believe. (laughs) Believe. Jesus says to them, right now, you are standing in the light. The light is shining on you. In fact, the light is right in front of you. In fact, I am the light. The people have all the evidence they need. This is the man 
who turned water into wine. This is the man who fed thousands with a few bread and fishes. This is a man who brought his friend back to life who'd been buried for days. This is a man who has just prayed in public and God himself has answered him from heaven. What more do you need? There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to say. It's time to believe. It's time to believe. But there won't always be a time to believe. The light won't always be there. When Jesus says that the light will be among them for a little while longer, he's referring either to the time up to his death or perhaps the time up to his ascension into heaven. But either way, the implication is clear. There's a limited window of opportunity that you can't afford to miss. Believe in the light while you have the light. And that same principle applies today. Wherever the gospel is preached, wherever Jesus is lifted up, wherever Christians are bearing witness to Jesus, the light shines. But people won't always have the light. If you are not a believer in Jesus this morning, you have the light. But you won't always have the light. So believe in the light while you have the light. Because once the light is gone, there's only darkness. Believe in Jesus while there's time. Some words of conclusion. In this passage this morning, we see a range of responses to the voice of God. You see how the voice of God features in this passage? God the Father speaks from heaven. God the Son, Jesus, gives his own testimony. And those who hear these words respond in different ways. First, there are those who hear the voice of God and it's just noise. <laughs> to them, it's just like the sound of thunder. Meaningless noise. They don't get it at all. And that's how some people today respond when they hear the gospel. Gibberish. Meaningless noise. There are also those who hear the words, but they don't acknowledge that it's God. It's just an angel. In other words, it's just some lesser authority. So it can be dismissed. Yes, we hear it. Yes, we understand it, but we can dismiss it. Just an angel. And that's how some people today respond when they hear the gospel. Yeah, I, I get it, but I can dismiss it. Then there are those who have doubts, objections, critical questions, like the crowd in verse 34. The questions they ask aren't necessarily bad questions, but they still reflect unbelief. The questions are there to deflect and to delay, to put things off. And that's how some people today respond when they hear the gospel. Okay, I hear you, but I got this question. I got that question. And then 
There are those who hear the voice of God, who acknowledge the voice of God, who see Jesus lifted up, the Son of Man, crucified for the sins of the world, and they believe. They believe. And so my question for you this morning, very simple, what is your response to the voice of God this morning? What is your response to the voice of God this morning? Let's pray. Our Father, help us to see the wondrous cross. <laughs> what a strange and paradoxical thing it is that you might glorify yourself and glorify your Son with this cruel death of the cross. And yet it is the means of our salvation. It's the means of you demonstrating your justice and of defeating all the powers of darkness that stand against you and indeed stand against us. Father, I pray that those of us who have heard this story before and have believed that you would strengthen and deepen our faith. And for those who have never yet believed, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that indeed you would draw people from every part of this world. Glorify the Son as he is lifted up. In Jesus' name, amen.